Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. episode of still watching wandavision before we become still watching falcon and the winter soldier i'm very fair senior writer joanna robinson and i'm anthony bresnikan a los angeles correspondent with vanity fair <laughs> richard is uh taking the week off he is on a, a much deserved vacay this week uh but he will be back to talk about falcon and the winter soldier with us next week uh if you didn't hear us mention this on the finale episode we are just rolling on with marvel uh through to the next show so we will be picking up Falcon the Winter Soldier. And hey, maybe you're just joining us for the first time. And if yeah, you are, welcome. here's what we do on Still Watching. We pick a show. We watch it closely. Mm-hmm. We talk to you about it. Sometimes we interview people who are involved with the show. Uh, usually Richard Lawson is here at the top with me, but Anthony uh, has gamely stepped up to <laughs> to fill in. Usually Anthony's in the back half getting really nerdy about comics with me. We, um, we work ourselves into a lather over <laughs> really uh, deep dive theories and uh <laughs> deep cuts from the comics and various marvel lore uh but but uh Sometimes that pays off, but all the time it's fun. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> so. exactly. All the time it's fun. Um, so, so we are here to just wrap everything up with a bow. Um, 
We have um, a couple interviews on this podcast I'm really excited about. We've got a conversation with the showrunner Jack Schaefer, and we've got a conversation with the great Catherine Hahn. So a little twofer on this episode. Uh, so that's going to be the chunk of this episode. That's like an, like an hour of your time. So and you know, well Anthony spent. and I are here to do a little interstitial uh, talking. What did you want to say, Anthony? I, I want to get to that. That, 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 that that's what I want to hear is, <clears throat> you know, you've they've heard, people have heard us uh, opine and uh, theorize. <laughs> let's get let's just get the straight answers from jack schaefer (laughs) (laughs) perfect and she did she answered you several of you emailed us in questions for jack and Catherine. uh they were amazing i couldn't get to all of them but i definitely got to plenty of them uh Uh, for listeners i also sent uh joe some questions i'm with you i'm like emailing her here's what i want to know and so uh (laughs) you know i don't even get preferential treatment sometimes you guys ask better questions (laughs) Um, (laughs) i did use at least one of anthony's questions um but uh, but yeah, but you can email us stillwatchingpod at gmail.com if you have any future questions about Falcon and the Winter Soldier, um, questions you want us to ask, you know, cast or crew when, if and when we talk to them for that show. I know we're going to be kicking off next week's episode with an interview with Malcolm Spellman, who's the showrunner of Falcon and the Winter Soldier. So we're just rolling along into that. And I do want to talk just very briefly about Falcon and the Winter Soldier before we get into WandaVision. Um, I've heard from a bunch of people saying like they weren't sure you know, even if they liked WandaVision, they weren't sure that they really wanted to watch Falcon and the Winter Soldier. It looked a little like, you know, back to basics, Marvel, punchy, punchy to them. And I'm here to tell you, I haven't seen the episode yet. I think I get a screener soon. Um, I haven't seen it yet, but I have heard a lot of things from a lot of people. Um, and what I've heard is that there was, um, they, they really actually kind of reconceived this whole show after they'd planned it out. They kind of reconceived the whole thing to go a couple layers deeper uh, on the conversation. And a lot of it has to do with um, identity. Uh, you know, at the end of the last big Marvel movie, Steve Rogers hands the shield to Sam Wilson, who's played by Anthony Mackie, uh, who goes by the Falcon. And, you know, he's basically like, you're the captain now, right? Um, <laughs> First Barkhad Abdi reference of the show. <laughs> and and Falcon, though, did not like necessarily fully accept that. And this is going to be a series about um, Anthony Mackie's character, Falcon Sam Wilson, who's a veteran, who's um, but also who is a black man in America grappling with what it means to be Captain America and whether or not he wants it mm. and whether or not other people want him to have it. And I think that's a very interesting conversation to be having right now. And I think that's something that the show itself is really interested in diving into. So I think that there's just like, there's a little bit more meat on the bone here than I think maybe the plus. And then if that sounds like a slog to you, I've heard they, you know, the original plan for the show was that they're going to do like a midnight run sort of like buddy comedy squabbling sort of thing and if you've seen uh what is it civil war right when they're sitting in the back seat and sort of like snarking yeah. at each other mm-hmm. there's real potential here i think for these two so um, yes yeah i like so, the combination of the heaviness and the lightness that's what yeah I'm for. I, th- I think you know and and if anyone can thread that needle i think i think marvel has shown that they can hopefully so uh so really quickly i will have a piece up on vanityfair.com next week uh, a little like primer for people but i'll just say movie wise i think you'll want to watch uh the winter soldier which is my favorite um captain america movie captain america winter soldier Okay. Uh, you're going to want to watch Civil War. 
and uh end game that's what i would say what would you say uh yeah those are the key ones Cap- yeah. so you said captain america the captain america films i think are like all three of them and uh i don't know that you need hmm. the first one I'm, I'm it wouldn't hurt but i think you could start with winter soldier if you if you if you if you don't have time to watch all of them, I would say start with Winter Soldier, Civil War, Endgame. First Avengers is a great movie, and you should watch it too if you have time. But, but what about yes. like the Bucky relationship? Some yeah, but it's sort of it's there in Winter Soldier too. I don't know. I, I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> Sorry, we Anthony's usually like, are. Let's be a completist, guys. Watch them we, all. And we I, are usually I in lockstep, but I do it a little Marge Gunderson. I'm That's like, okay. Yeah, I agree 100 percent with your police work there, Joe. I don't know. I think that. <laughs> I okay. think that I think that early skinny little guy version of Steve Rogers and Bucky is super important. Like that's where he learned how to be a good guy was from Bucky. Okay. All right. Uh, uh, <laughs> so so you can listen to Anthony or listen to me, but either way, you will be prepared. I promise. Um, and then let me just rattle off. Let me just uh, rattle off really quickly some comics that you do not have to read, but you could if you wanted to. Um, cause I think, you know, it was helpful for some people to read like House of M or, um, you know, there were a few division quests. There were a few different WandaVision, WandaVision, Wanda and Vision comics that people liked reading. So let me recommend, well, let me just say this really quickly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, was it like two years ago that Kevin Feige was given an even bigger promotion to be like head of all Marvel Entertainment? Was that like 2019? I think so. Approximately, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so that that's that's part of why he's like overseeing the television uh, arm of the company right now. But he's also got oversight on the comic side as well. Uh, I'm not sure exactly the parameters of that, but for the first time, he does. And but that means what I was noticing as I was going through Comixology, which is where I get my comics, but this is not an ad for Comixology because they're owned by Amazon, which is evil. So go to your local comics store. But um. When I was going through and checking these titles, what I noticed is they've collected starting in, oh, conveniently, February 2021, they've collected some of these titles in new collections. Um, And I think, you know, what that means is that they're curating your to read list for you over at Marvel Comics to get you prepared for this show. Do you know what I mean? Which is mm-hmm. not necessarily they would they would like highlight titles, but I don't think this like collecting them is something they were exactly doing. Please correct me if I'm wrong, still watching pot at gmail.com. Let me rattle off really quickly some titles. Winter Soldier colon the bitter March uh from 2014. Captain America colon Winter Soldier, that's Ed Brubaker and Steve Epting from 2006. Captain America colon Sam Wilson, Nick Spencer and Daniel Acuna and that is um that's about Falcon being the being Captain America, you know. Uh Winter Soldier colon Second Chances miniseries, uh that's Kyle Higgins and Rod Reese. Winter Soldier, the complete collection by Ed Brubaker. And this is one of those curated things where they've collected like a couple Captain America comics and some Winter Soldier stuff and put it into a collection for you um, on, you know, at least on Comixology. So that's sort of interesting. And that one, you see a lot of Natasha, uh, Black Widow and uh, Bucky Barnes stuff. And I suspect that they're going to put... Emily Van Camp's character, Sharon Carter, into some of that Natasha stuff would be a guess I would have because she's like uh, the third lead of the show is Sharon Carter. 
Emily Van Camp. So there you go. Uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier, colon, cut off one head. Derek Landy and Federico Vincentini, Vincentini. And this is also, this is something they started at the end of 2020 is that comic. So that one is like very Falcon and Winter Soldier, colon, cut off one head. It's very, you know, connected to what they're thinking about for the show. And then three bonus recommendations. Captain America number 321, Mark Grunewald and Paul Neary. And that's the introduction or a, a highlights this character called Flag Smasher, who's a character who will be played by Aaron Kellyman, who is in um, ha- the Han Solo movie as Emphis Nest, the Star Wars uh, movie. Oh. So she is showing up cool. as a as a villain called Flag Smasher, which I'm pretty excited about. That's 2014. And then Captain America number 333, The Replacement by Mark Grunewald and Tom Morgan. That centers on the character of John Walker, who is known by a super patriot or a few other things. And that's a character is going to show up played by Wyatt Russell, Kurt Russell's kid. So um, those are just some recommendations. Again, I'll put those in a post on VF.com, but I thought I'd sort of, if you want to get started over the weekend, I thought I'd rattle those off. Rewind. Excellent curation there, Joe. (laughs) This is a fantastic list. Uh, I think, seriously, like it sounds like you're getting homework here, but this is a super fun list of of comics. There are a couple in here that I haven't read. I do think those ones from 2006, uh, the Captain America Winter Soldier ones, are like, and uh, and, uh, the 2016 Captain America Sam Wilson series by Nick Spencer and Daniel Cuna are really important ones. You know, the Winter Soldier one is, it involves the death of Captain America, you know, mm-hmm. and we all know superheroes die now and then in the comics and they usually come back in some form or another. But the notion of Bucky, former Winter Soldier, taking over the mantle of Captain America, we've talked about that phenomenon a lot on uh, Still Watching. That's a really important touchstone for this show. Who gets to carry that shield? Bucky, Sam Wilson, maybe both of them in some way carry it on uh i think that's probably where things are headed is that there's a evolving friendship between these two guys who consider themselves enemies but had a mutual friend so excellent list joe this like it's like when you go to the the bachelor bachelorette party um i think snl just had a like a sort of a skit about this but if you go to the bachelor bachelorette party and you're like you're currently friends with someone who's getting married, but their friend from like high school's there and you don't know each other. Maybe you don't really even like get along, but there's this like weird, like we're here for the bride sort of thing. We're here for the groom. Um, so this, yeah, this is like, they're not friends, but they both had a friend and he's gone now. And what do they do in, in the wake of that? So I, I think I remember interviewing Anthony Mackie on the set of one of the latter Avenger films. And was like, oh, have he and Bucky sort of found like a little way of working together, Sam and Bucky? He's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Sam does not trust Bucky, and he never will. And I was like, wow. Interesting. Like, he tolerates him for Steve. And I, I, I have to have to go back and find that interview, but like, uh, I'm sure it'll be interesting to bring up on our next run of shows. But yeah, and I think it's good that they kept that little bit of friction, that it wasn't all kumbaya between them. So basically, like, we really hope you'll join us. Um for for that journey i think it's gonna be really fun so you do not have to read any of those comics don't worry about it but they're there if you want them um we will be talking about them uh in in the section that anthony and i do going forward um all right so let us we got a few quick things to hit and then we're gonna get to our jack schaefer interview so let's start with um i want to start with actually something you texted me over the weekend anthony which you you, you watched the finale with your kids 
and mm-hmm. uh, you saw uh, at least one classical uh, movie illusion. Do you want to do you want to bring that up real quick? Yeah, I send Joe a text and I'm like, oh, we forgot to bring up the boots underneath the throne, the car that was thrown through the house. Very yes. uh, Wizard of Oz reference. And that made me realize, you know, we've, we've brought up uh, what was the name of the one of the witches was uh, not Esmeralda, but something uh, Evadora, Evadora, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, <clears throat> I get there eventually. <laughs> and, the, uh, and I realized, oh, even the whole transition from black and white to color is a very Wizard mm-hmm. of Oz thing. You know, I remember watching The Wizard of Oz with my daughter when she was very little. And at a certain point, she turns to me uh, and she's like, I wish this movie was in color. And I was like, just you wait, kid. <laughs> just wait. <laughs> Coming right up. And uh, uh, that whole transition from the, the black and white Dick Van Dyke era to uh, in Bewitched era to color. Uh, I think is also a uh, a Wizard of Oz thing, and the storms. Obviously, the witches, good and evil, battling each other. But yeah, the boots under the car, very clear homage to the Wicked Witch of the East, right? Who dies at the beginning? Yeah, mm-hmm. when I saw that, I was like, "Oh, they're gonna do it! They're gonna do the three witches that I want!" And then they didn't, and I was like, "Oh well." Um, okay, so so the boots, and then what? What about the the lake stuff that you saw that you that you thought about? Oh yes, the. F- the final uh, post post credit scene of the camera swooping over what looks like like a Rocky Mountain type area and a and a, a lake and there's a little island with some pine trees in it and then it zooms in on the cabin where um, where Wanda is seeming to enjoy like a cup of tea or coffee but in the background of the house or the back of the house she's in full Scarlet Witch gear. Uh, um, What's that called? Uh, remote viewing? <laughs> astral projecting. Astral projecting, yeah. Uh, sorry. Astral okay. projecting herself as she goes through the dark hole. And I was like, oh, this kind of reminds me of The Shining. You know, that opening sequence of uh, the Torrances driving their little yellow car up the mountain road. Like, the opening shot just swoops in. I think it's a helicopter shot. Uh, obviously, it just it, but it feels like, like, a, like a red-tailed hawk just sort of swooping over the mountains and then over a lake with a little island in the middle of it. And uh, uh, it's a very similar shot. I don't think it's the same location unless maybe the landscape has changed a little over uh, 40-some years. But uh, it also, uh, you know, I wanted to see if anybody else had noticed this. And I, I found somebody on Twitter who pointed out that one of Wanda's costumes with like a little blue jumper over kind of red and white polka dotted pants or uh she got red tights and then like a little a little long sleeve yeah shirt thing underneath yeah is very similar to something that wendy torrance uh, shelly duvall yeah yeah that shelly duvall's character wore in uh in the shining so yeah uh, you know i think maybe there's a we got uh, twins we got spookiness we we have spookiness (laughs) we've got twins but also like i think just a lot of filmmakers and storytellers love Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, and yeah. and and so they're always throwing little homages in. So maybe that's yeah. Just the last the last homage I want to mention is um, as many people noted the the marquee in the in the end of um, the finale uh, the movie marquee that we've been looking at this whole time uh, has Tannhauser Gate on there, um, which is a reference to a scene in Blade Runner um, when uh, Roy Batty um, I believe it is 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 dying tears in the rain beautiful scene uh, and Matt Shackman just said that he put that in there as like a little like. Uh, you know, the death of an android sort of moment. I'm annoyed though because I actually I saw that in the penultimate episode because when she when she 
you know, bursts forth the hex from her body and her in her grief in in the second to last episode of the season. Uh, you see the hex go through the town and change it from one thing to another. And I saw that the marquee originally read Tannhauser Gate before it changed over. And I was like, oh, a Blade Runner reference. How fun. And um, and I just didn't talk about it. And then like <laughs> when the finale happened, everyone's like, did you notice the Blade? And I was like, oh, I noticed it a week ago. Man, I didn't say anything. So uh, trust me, I will not bite my tongue about a Blade Runner reference in the future. Um, <laughs> there was one other thing. It's not a movie reference, yeah. but I think it's like a little bit of foreshadowing. Um, when Agatha is having, like, right before they float up into the sky for their final confrontation, uh, Agatha's standing on top of, I think it's like the, the department store. Yeah. It's in the heart of town, and there's a billboard behind her. And we talked a lot about the advertisements, the commercials in the show, um, alluding to, uh, one mm. past. There wasn't one in the final episode, but Agatha's standing in front of this billboard for like a, like a, like a, a spray cleaner, like a kitchen cleaner. And it was something like back to nature, and it was all about nature and going back to nature, and uh, and it showed like pine trees and things like that, uh, you know, mm. pine scented cleaner, right? So uh, I think that's a little bit of foreshadowing, just like I think the Nexus commercial uh, from the previous episode is a bit she of foreshadowing might. of she what very well might. which is going to get up to opening doors to the multiverse. And she's going to do it when she's isolated out in the woods in her little cabin. So back to nature, you know, reconnecting with nature. And also the fact that she, we talked about this a lot, is that she is a, like a natural talent. She is, you know, uh, uh, not somebody who uh, studied these things up until this point, but now she's studying. Now she's studying real hard. She's, uh, she's reading all those comics to get up, <laughs> get up to speed for the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, too. Just... Uh, you know, somebody should Photoshop some of those into the dark hole. Uh, <laughs> uh, you don't have to. You don't have to read them, but you can. <laughs> if you want to, so, yeah. Uh, if you want to spend a bunch more time, like uh, thinking about the finale after you listen to this um, episode, I really recommend Matt Shackman did a really long interview, like over an hour, I think, on Kevin Smith and Mark Bernardin's podcast, uh, Fat Man Beyond. Um, it has been misrepresented in some write-ups which has been frustrating me i was trying to like sort of play whack-a-mole with false rumors on twitter the other day which is a losing prospect um so i go straight to the source and listen to the interview it's really good um he talks about this big scene that was supposed to be in the finale where darcy and monica and the kids and ralph were going to steal the dark hold and and senior scratchy was going to turn into a demon i talked to jack about that too in our interview so you'll hear her take on that and why that isn't in there but that you know there's like some big stuff in the finale that they just couldn't make work in there if you're like why does darcy only have uh one line in the finale that's part of the reason why uh he also said that they originally intended to release the first three episodes as as one which is what the press got the first three episodes um, but because they were behind the gun with like special effects and COVID, um, they had to, you know, sort of spread it out a little bit more. But that's something I heard from a lot of people uh, watching the show. They're like, why didn't they release the first three at once? I wish I could have seen Monica booted from the hex the first, you know, the first night so that I knew what I was in for sort of thing. You know what I mean? Um, and then, yeah, let me just like knock a few other things out while we're here. Paul asked us who the boy next door was. Rich and I like really went off on this like <laughs> background actor who I never even saw in the background of the show. So I don't know. I think uh, I think that was just a, a background actor 
really excited to have been on the series uh and talking about it and uh and then he never i never even saw him anywhere so i don't think he was cut i don't think it's a bun some big conspiracy thing i think he's just uh you know whatever in the background um what's going on with the aerospace engineer thing this is the false rumor that's going around from that matt shackman interview where people are misinterpreting something he said thinking that they cut the aerospace engineer that they were in it and and what's true is that it was never going to be someone it the moment that they were building to there i think they didn't do a great job laying track for that because i think the way in which monica said that got us really excited for a person so I think, you know, I don't know if they went, if they turned back time, maybe they wouldn't have had her be like my guy, my guy or whatever a couple times. But what they were leading up to was that big moment, which is Monica, like getting her powers that happens in that scene. So any hype that Tiana Paris was doing or whatever was all about like this Rover moment that Matt Chapman, Matt Chapman was like saying that he was a little bummed because he's like, that was a really tricky sequence to pull off. And everyone was just like mad that Reed Richards wasn't there. Um, so, so that was going yeah. on with that, you know, so misaligned expectations. Uh, Jimmy Woo's guy, uh, the, the guy in witness protection, someone emailed us in asking about that and they were like, he just keeps getting mentioned. He gets mentioned once. It, it's mentioned once at the beginning as to why Jimmy's there. And yeah, it's like a little like, Hey, maybe this is the thread to pull on, but it's not like the show kept hammering the Witsec thing. That was like us talking about it. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. So yeah, uh, that's what I'll say about that. And oh, Tom wrote in and said uh, we were asking about Marvel fights that felt like they were infused with emotion, and he mentioned the fight between Steve and Bucky and Tony at the end of Civil War. And I would agree that little like I like the tarmac fight in that in that movie it's fun but the emotional fight comes at the end between those three characters yeah so for sure yeah um sorry i just plowed through a bunch of, bunch of things is there anything you want to say about that anthony no i don't have anything to add all right all right johnny wrote and asked if westview really existed yes i think he was a little confused about the cops in uh the earlier episode who were like westview there's only eastview and i i think the implication is they had been sort of spelled to to think that yeah you know that's what i interpreted that as yeah. it's just sort of uh uh you know they were uh glamored a little bit right um, someone asked what chaos magic was, uh, uh, well, Jack Schaefer is going to get into that. I asked her about that, but basically it's, um, the idea is that most magic in the world has a cost to it. Like for example, uh, Agatha can't get her power that she needs without sucking someone else bone dry. Whereas Wanda can create magic. So that's what cha chaos magic, oh. as they describe it is, is magic without a cost which is interesting. Uh, Jeremiah wrote in asking about the inherent misogyny of fan theorizing. This is a fascinating question. I asked both Jack Schaefer mm. and Catherine Hahn about it. Um, and basically it's this idea. I'll, I'll lay it out for you, Anthony. Basically it's this idea of like, um, were those of us who were waiting for another villain to come or for Dr. Strange to show up and like help save the day. And the villain we were waiting for was like a Mephisto or a nightmare. So probably a, a male figure. Is there something inherently misogynist in 
and and I don't say that in an accusatory way if you were sitting at home thinking this, because I was definitely thinking it too. So I'm not saying it in like, you're a misogynist if you thought this, but like, and, the, and Jack gets to this in a really nuanced way, I think, and so does Catherine. But like, this idea that it's, it's just an expectation baked into us, that there will be some male figure <laughs> here to come. Do you know what I mean? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess... <clears throat> I don't know. I hope this doesn't sound defensive. I love Agatha and Agnes, um, but they also didn't reveal that Agnes was the villain until very late in the season. I mean, we suspected, right? You and I guessed it, and other people who recognized the brooch guessed it. But a lot of, I mean, a lot uh, of that I think was it, I just think guessing. Mean, who's, like, what's the bad guy? What's the what's who's the antagonist here? And then it was sort of what does what does Agatha want? You know, and she kept bringing up these animals and and her her companion ralph so you know i don't i wasn't like i was like oh i need mephisto i really like her uh but i thought that maybe she had some other larger goal but uh yeah i don't know yeah no i mean i think i think mostly they're talking about like after the agatha reveal and and like i don't once again i don't think you need to feel defensive or or nor do i need to feel defensive for thinking dr strange is going to show up or mephisto or nightmare was going to show up i don't think it's an accusatory thing i think it's more like let's just sit and think about like if there is anything else you know Ooh. if there's something in the culture that you know has has sent us looking for that do you know sure i mean yeah. it very well could be um i mean for people who were definitely not like who felt like agatha wasn't enough i don't know what to tell those people i thought she was great <laughs> she was great you know yeah uh you know and 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 Catherine hahn is spectacular in this so and and you know you and i were like well let's not kill her let's keep her around yes. let's bring her back yeah. so uh uh i mean I, I can't speak to what other people were theorizing but uh i certainly adored her and thought she was a wonderful villain all right so before we go to our interview with jack one last thing i want to say is that i asked her a couple questions about the marvel process because i was just really interested in that and that has to do with like pitching pitching a sh- you know she had she wrote the black widow film so that means she'd already gone through the Marvel movie pitching process. So I wanted to know what going through the Marvel TV pitching process was like. And if you are not <clears throat> someone who who thinks and talks about movies and TV all the time, a pitching process is like basically going in and like selling yourself as, you know, it's it's an interview. It's an audition, right? Um, mm-hmm. But for writers. So we talked about that a little bit. And then also just, just what this what this creative process is like. For someone who is working in a larger narrative, for someone whose characters are then going to go off into Captain Marvel two or Doctor Strange two, what that what that sharing creative sharing is like currently at Marvel. Mm-hmm. So, um, those are some of the things we talked about. Um, kind of process question. So, um, all right. Anything else you want to say before we hear from Jack? Let's hear. Let's hear from Jack at long last. Let's go to Jack Schaefer. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake at The New Yorker, to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There is five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. 
And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. Something we tried really hard to do throughout with the theorizing, because I think it is fun, but I do see the danger of it, um, is just be like, and if it's not that, who cares? You know what I mean? Like, let's have I fun. I love things, that. You know? Yeah. One of the sections that I, that I heard with you, you talked about how you, like, you used to get frosty when your theories didn't work out, and now it's part of the fun. And I have that locked safe in my heart, because the because this is my first experience with, like, theorizing at this level. Yeah. Um, and, and like, and I've, it's been, a, like, the emotional part of it has been a little challenging. And and so I really appreciated it when you said that, because I, I think I take it really seriously. Like, all the folks at Marvel, they've been through this a million times. So, like, right. they let slide and like think they think they find so much of it you know hilarious um and and fun, part of the fun like part that whole like the sort of there's this like semi-permeable membrane between marvel and the fans um and it's it's really really amazing but yeah it was it was my first like big experience so um anyway i took a lot of comfort in that statement that you made so thank you i mean honestly i promise you i laughed for almost a full day when i found out what paul bettany was up to I thought that was one of the funniest <laughs> things that's ever happened. So I've, I've, I've evolved that stage at this point. Oh my God. He was so hilarious about that. Like, uh, yeah. Like when I read it, I was like, Paul, <laughs> it's so funny. It's so funny that he did that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's why uh, I talked to, uh, as you may or may not have heard, I talked to Emma Caulfield last week and she, you know, because you guys go back a bit. Um, and as I told her, I'm a timer fan. So, um, you you know, I was, I was sort of asking her if she had any like extra insight into how you were feeling about this big of an undertaking. (laughs) And I think the first thing she said was nervous, but then also followed by, you know, extremely capable, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. (laughs) But I'm, I'm curious, you know, yeah. Tell me about any of those nerves that you might've had. Um, I mean, first of all, I love that the first question is, (laughs) is how are you feeling? How are you feeling? What are your feelings? I love that. (laughs) Um, also, I have to say, Joanna, um, you are a like like an uncanny voice double for my OBGYN, oh. and that got me through two pregnancies. So um, I really I feel like I feel very safe and secure in your hands, um, and so that is just that has been hilarious to me listening to you all this time. Um, nice. It's a compliment. She's got a great voice. Well, how am I feeling? Um, well, I mean, I'm I'm delighted to be on the other side of it. I'm mm-hmm. I'm delighted to have the full full story out in the world to be able to speak about it plainly, you know, and not to be playing that game, um, especially in the media with like what you can say and what you can't say. So right. that is an enormous relief. And I'm, I'm thrilled to see all of the discourse about the full story. Um, um, yeah, I mean, this experience has been a, a, an incredibly wild ride um, to have such a, a real time discussion of everything. Um, and I think I was naive going through it. Um, thinking like being sort of surprised at the, at the, like the enormous scale of the theorizing. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I think I, I, I was hopeful that there would be, you know, a big emotional reaction. And that's what I has been the most satisfying piece of it is that it genuinely has seemed to, you know, touch and move people. So, um, so I think my, my, my feelings at this point are, 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 are in the sphere of happiness for the most part. 
Um, yeah, I think that emotional, you know, whether or not, however people feel about their theories or various Easter eggs feeling like they panned out or not, I think that you can confidently say that the emotion landed with everyone, which is what I was looking for uh, in the show, because that's what I like uh, in a show. Um, me too. Yeah. Me too. That's what yeah. I, I'm, I'm looking for that, like feeling of completion and catharsis. And, and yeah, that was definitely our intention. I am so curious. I have a lot of questions for you about sort of the process of this. And I know there's only so much you can tell me because of Marvel's cone of silence, but um, you know, given that this is uh, you know, an early foray into this realm of television storytelling, which is different for them, new and exciting. Um, and given that you've also, you've pitched on black widow, I know a bit about how the movie pitch process works at Marvel, but how different was it for you to go in and pitch on a TV series for them? Or is it the same process? I mean, it was largely the same process in terms of like what, you know, the room we were in and the people that I was pitching to um, and and what and sort of what their expectations are for, you know, what a successful pitch is. Mm -hmm. Um, What was different was the volume of the pitch that that I I essentially broke the season for them. Um, And I, I had been working at Marvel long enough to know like I was literally familiar with the rooms and, and how they pitch internally. So, um, so I put a lot of art up on the walls because I had never pitched a series before and was like, the only way I know how to do this is to put the posters of the shows I'm talking about up on the walls and then like walk through them and tell the story. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was just, it was just a longer pitch than I'd ever done. It was over an hour and um, just nonstop. And, and and I like I had to it was necessary to use a lot of visuals to to track all of the pieces of it. You know, the, the episodes had titles and they like there was a lot of because I wanted um, them to be able to to hang on to it. So it was just it was just like a super pitch is what it was. My understanding is that, you know, the concept of Wanda's grief through the lens of this tour of sitcom came from Kevin himself. You know, he's talked about, you know, being a, a Nick at Night kid and stuff like that. Um, so when you come in and sort of pitch on top of that, say, this is how I'm going to deliver on that. Um, I don't know if this is asking you to blow your own horn a little bit, but what do you think it was about <laughs> your pitch that made them go, ah, that's the one. <laughs> um, I, um, first of all, yes, that is absolutely true that they, that that was Kevin's idea and, and, and that they had been internally noodling on it and working on it and sort of fleshing out um, notions for what it could be, which they shared with me. Um, I mean, I, you know, what Kevin has said to me is that I, that I just got it. You know, I, I got what they, what their hopes and dreams were. Um, I think, I think I brought a structure to it. You know, the, I I was very excited in the, during the pitch process of the idea of, of having the Monica character kicked out and then having an episode that was essentially a, a bottle episode where we backtrack everything with her um, leading up to her entering the hex, well, leading up actually to her being expelled from the hex, um, that we would do that in the center of the series and and have this big info dump, but still not give up all the goods, that that would then be saved for the penultimate episode. Right. That's where we do Wanda's rerun, rewind. So I think that those were sort of large things that I brought to it is, is these two specific rewinds that were tied to, to the two, you know, two of the central women in the show. Um, and that, and that the build to the proper MCU spectacle was at the end of the show, not sort of seen throughout. Um, and then I think I just, I felt very tied to the emotion of the story and to, to Wanda herself and to the love story, because that's, 
what interests me. I mean, you know, I, I love, I, I am a nerd. I love sci-fi. I love fantasy. I love magical realism. I love all of those things. Um, but they only really work when it's grounded in something that feels authentic and accessible. Um, so, um, yeah, I think, I think, and I, and also like pop culture, like I know all the shows, like it's very easy to, for me to speak in that language. Um, like most writers, like, especially most TV writers. So yeah, I would guess it is awkward to, to toot my own horn. So hope that went okay. <laughs> sounded beautiful. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about, um, what, uh, you may or may not have heard me mention this, but one of my, one of the quotes that you gave in an interview that you gave a while ago that I thought was so interesting was your idea about villains and villainy and how you think it's, um, a little boring to do black and white villains and how shades of gray villains or villains who could be redeemed are so much more interesting to you. You've got this great line for Agatha in the finale that's something like, you know, there will always be torches and pitchforks for women like us, Wanda. How much do you feel like you fulfilled that brief with Agatha, that idea of making a villain who isn't pure evil of some kind? Um, yeah. I mean, the, um, thank you. Thank you for all, all of that. Um, well, first of all, you know, the supervillain of the show is grief. Um, so, so that was helpful in itself because yes, we were looking at Agatha as like technically on paper, the big bad of the show. Um, but we had, we had space for that to be more nuanced. And we knew even before Catherine came on, you know, we knew this was a, a, a woman, right? So it's two women at the center in terms of the, the, you know, the battle. Um, and that, and we knew in the comics that Agatha was a, was a mentor and a teacher and a mother figure and all of these other things. Mm-hmm. And so it felt very organic to fold all of that into her story. And then as we were figuring out Agatha's backstory, Laura Donnie wrote the penultimate episode and she, she did many iterations, all of them beautiful of, of Agatha's origin. And with every one, she took it very seriously. Like what, what is the core trauma of this woman? Um, And that sort of bled into everything, like all, all of um, Agatha and Wanda, Wanda's exchanges, even the lighter ones in the sitcom, like have all of that texture underneath them. And then when we cast Catherine Hahn, it's like, you can't, you can't have Catherine Hahn in anything without it being multidimensional. Like right. even to try, like you're right. not going to get a flat performance. Mm-hmm. She has questions. She, she wants to know, she wants to embody fully. So then it just, of course, went to the next level with her. Um, but when you bring up that, you know, what I said about black and white villains, I mean, what it makes me think of is, is Wanda. I, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in all the sides of Wanda yeah. um, and, and, you know, seeing, her her flaws and her selfishness and how reactionary she is um and how um how big her anger can be um so so yeah i mean i just think i just think the, the more you invest in your characters in an authentic way the better all of the storytelling will be um and i will say that you know at the time when i spoke about villains i think i remember that interview it was at a moment where i was just so enamored of killmonger in in black panther yeah. i was just it was just like it like knocked me across the face, like how powerful that character is. Yeah. Um, and it, and it, I just aspire to that all the time. To the end about, you know, talking about Wanda and all the dimensions of Wanda. Um, I, you know, I know better than to ask you what's next exactly for her, but I will ask you this. Should we, do you think we as an audience would be correct to be worried about her? Worried about her? Is that what you said? Sorry, you broke up. Yeah, worried about her. I mean, I always worry about her. (laughs) 
Um, yeah, I mean, it's, I, it's, it's hard. I can't speak about what happens next. I know some of it. Um, I think the thing that makes me feel good about whatever happens next is, is Lizzie and her attachment to the character. Um, she is an incredible protector of this woman, Wanda Maximoff, um, and understands her so fully. Um, and so I don't know. I, I, I think it's just going to continue to be fascinating is what I will say about it. Good answer. Um, I was, I was listening to an interview with, uh, that Matt Shackman gave over the weekend, a, a pretty long one. And he was talking about how the strange production or story development offices were right around the corner from yours. And that the, and like sort of towards the end that he was talking to Sam Raimi a little bit. So I was just wondering if you could talk about, not specifically, but generally sort of the conversations when you're doing something like this in the larger sandbox of Marvel and you've got your corner and your toys and you know you're going to be handing those toys off to different creators, what that collaboration process looks like. Well, it's, you know, it's always overseen by Marvel, the, Mm -hmm. their, their network of producers, they're, you know, they're executives, but they're, they're really just like genuine dyed in the wool producers. Um, And, and so, you know, they know, all then they and they share what needs to be shared um there is a sense of community and it's wonderful and i i know a lot of the other artists and feel grateful to know them um i mean the one of the writers in my um room megan mcdonald is writing captain marvel too which is just a glorious thing um and um, so, you know, I, I know the writer, Michael Waldron, um, you know, he is the head writer on Loki. And so we had become friendly during that time. Um, so, you know, we had, there were sort of like some formal conversations to be had and then some casual conversations to be had. Um, I think it's, I think it's different for every creative there. And I, I have felt very lucky to have had, you know, the access that I've had to the, to the, all the other people who are working on the projects. It's a little bit of a non-answer. I apologize. <laughs> no, I understand. I mean, I think I think my understanding of the way that Marvel has evolved in its you know uh, longish history now is that you come in knowing that you're playing in a sandbox with other folks. You know what I mean? I think wherever there may have been tension before was from folks thinking they had their own sandbox, and I think the expectation now when you do a project for Marvel is that you know, you're, oh my gosh, I'm going to say the most Northern California thing. You're one like piece of yarn in a tapestry. You know what I mean, <laughs> right? And you have to like work with other ones. Well, I, I mean, I would, I would say yes and no to that. I mean, mm-hmm. first the things that, that you're alluding to about like tensions in the past, I personally know very little about that. And what sure. and yeah. things didn't just to, just to clarify, like, yeah, I think, I think I know what you're alluding to and it's stuff that happened before I was there. Right. Um, I think that um, what I will say, and I think this is unusual um, and part of the the success of Marvel is that yes, you're part of a larger story and a larger larger mythology, and you're sort of bound to that. But the way that Marvel works, the way that Kevin and Lou and Victoria and your you know particular executive work is they make you feel like you're the only you're you're, right. you're the prettiest girl in the room right um and and you 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 know get the full weight of everything and you are every every piece of the project is is taken seriously and and they want each thing to be the best absolute thing that it can be and then it has to like click into place with the rest um so I think I wouldn't describe it as like, it's some kind of like a surrender that you're like oh I'm just I'm a cog like it's not no it's yeah wonderfully like like beautifully interlocked. Um, yeah. and to me, it has always been like a gift. Like I, 
I never thought I would do TV because I couldn't understand how you could spin out a show, like a story. Like I was like, no, no, no. A story has a beginning and middle end. And then you walk away. Yeah. Um, and you throw your popcorn in the trash and it's done. And I, I just didn't think, I'm like, how can you spin it out and spin it out and spin it out? And I, you know, on this, I learned some of those skills, but I also, I've enjoyed that, that working inside Marvel, like some of that, pressure is like taken off me because they're all like, you have to fit the, the need to fit inside this thing that the sort of like slightly prescriptive nature of it, um, helps craft good story. It's like, I, I, uh, again, at the risk of speaking way too much, I started an independent film and, and the lesson in independent film is always like, whatever the restrictions are, whatever the limitations are, the lack of resources, like, you know, if you're doing it well, those end up being gifts, right? There ended up being like discoveries and choices that you make because of a lack that end up right. being, right? And it's sort of like that in this mm-hmm. huge scale. It's like when you're told you can't have that character, you can't do that plot line, you find something else. Right. You get to be really innovative. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I like that. Um, I want to ask you about um, this. Oh yeah, here's what I want to ask you. I want to ask you. We got we got a question from one of our listeners actually about. Um, well, they have several for you. Some of the ones I might have already asked you might have come from them. I'll give them credit. But um, they, someone was asking about whether or not I thought that all. We talked a little bit about the theories about the nature of some of the theories. The the predominant one being that beyond Agatha, there was going to be one more shell layer of a villain, and that villain would you know people were assuming would be. Uh, a Mephisto or a nightmare and we're expecting a man to show up. And do I think there was something inherently misogynist in that expectation that there had to be one more thing and it had to involve a male villain and, and that people couldn't on some level, probably subconsciously accept that this was a story about, you know, Wanda and vision, but also Wanda and Agatha and Wanda and Monica and, and a lot of like female friend storytelling. So I know, I know that this show you aren't setting about with like some massive feminist agenda, but it is, you know, a very female fronted show. Do you, so do you have any thoughts about that, about that idea of like, were you ever watching people wait for a man and be like, he's not coming. These <laughs> women. Okay. Yeah. Um, first of all, I've never taken a, a, a question from a listener. So this is a big moment for me. <laughs> cool. So whoever, what's the listener's name? I don't have it written down. I'm so sorry. Oh, okay. I'm so sorry. Whoever you are. Thank you for your wonderful question. Um, I, I have so much to say about that. I will try and keep it brief. Um, I, um, I would not say like, I wouldn't say like it's inherently misogynistic or sexist because I'm not putting that on any viewer. I do believe it is a product of our collective programming. I think that the idea that there's some big male bad or that there needs to be a male savior in the form of Magneto or Dr. Strange or whatever, that there needs to be some, there needs to be some intervention, either a larger power source or, or a, a savior source and that it be a man yeah, that's a result of the storytelling we've been watching for eons. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't feel like critical or irritated or even hurt by any of that. I'm like, yeah, we, this is what we're used to. Right. And so when I would read that kind of thing, first of all, this is probably going to get me in trouble, but like, I don't, I've never heard of Mephisto or Mephisto. <laughs> So like my writers a little bit had to like, there, I needed a little illumination about that. And like, 
it, it, I, you know, we, it was never like, like laughing at the fan base. Like no, it, was, yeah. it was always a celebration of, of their enthusiasm. So it wasn't like, haha, that's not coming, but it was one of the pieces of theorizing that never got under my skin because I felt so certain in the story of there doesn't need, we, she doesn't need to be saved and she is the most powerful. So end of story gang. Um, like anything else would be tacked on and unnecessary. Um, so yeah, that would be my response to that. Can you say what theorizing did get under your skin? Um, (laughs) let's see. What would I, um, well, the, the stuff about Dottie, um, a little bit just because, um, cause Emma is so fantastic and, and she and I go way back and I love her so much yeah. and it seemed to sort of like run away in a bit where I was like, no, she just came to the show and did excellent work. Like she came and she, and she was like the ice queen, like, you know, uh, like the mean girl of the neighborhood and she right. killed that. Mm-hmm. And then she came back and she was Sarah and, and like was heartbreaking talking about her daughter locked in her room. Right. Like that's, that's why we hired her and she's beautiful. And she is tied to all of these other fan bases. And like, she's a total weirdo. And I knew she would get the show. Um, and so the sort of like the extra hype there. And like, I think, you know, and I feel protective of her. So like, I didn't enjoy that too much um i mean although i you know again like i have no criticism of of the theorizing itself or the fans themselves um and then um that's all i'll say i feel everything else Um, is too much exposure (laughs) um i want i actually have one last uh like easter egg false thread that i followed question for you which is you gave this uh sort of like a behind the scenes package interview um, and in the background of your interview, there was a Wonder Man, um, like art on the wall. Was that an intentional misdirect or was that, you know, as you're noodling various ideas, that was genuinely something you were considering at one point? Um, that was not, that was, that, that was not something that the, the publication of that footage, we were not intentionally trying to mess with people. That, okay. that was not what that was. <laughs> Okay. Um, I sort of wish that we could like put in print somewhere, like photos of all of the walls of that room because yeah. we would all think that we're insane. Um, so yes, I mean, I would say that that was like, there are just totally crazy things on the walls in that room to inspire. We had a, there's a, that the, the way that that room is constructed, there's randomly one beam that is a very bizarre, like art, architectural piece of the room. Uh-huh. And we put a sign on it that said beam of weirdness. And we just put every weird thing that came up in the room. We, Gretchen Enders, who wrote episode um, two, is a whiz with Photoshop. So like, it was a lot of like that kind of amalgamated weirdness. Um, so yeah, I would say that it was part of larger conversations. Okay. Um, can you talk at, how much can you say about the way in which COVID affected the finale in that Shackman interview I, I referenced, which if anyone wants to listen was with on Kevin Smith's podcast, he was talking about the sequence that you had filmed or he had filmed, um, with Monica, Darcy, the kids and the dark holds and that the senior scratchy was going to turn into a demon and that, you know, the VFX just didn't come together or story-wise, it just didn't seem like it fit or whatever it may be. I know that people wanted, I mean, people just wanted more and more. Right. And so they wanted the finale to be two hours long. They wanted Darcy uh, and Monica to have even more to do, et cetera. Um, How much of that is COVID? How much of that is story? Uh, What's the balance there? 
Yeah. I mean, well, that stuff, the scratchy stuff, I'm like, I'm sorry, I need to like go and listen to what he said because I don't know. I don't know. We could like talk about that. Yeah. (laughs) He said senior scratchy turned into a demon. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah, And like chase them. And then there was a Goonie set piece and all of that. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, God, just said it. Stuff? Well, I mean, he said it first. <laughs> so I'm like, ah, if it didn't make it on the screen, I can't talk about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, um, yeah, I mean, so that that stuff was not COVID related. We shot that before COVID. Um, I think, I think, you know, with the finale, there were things that that were written that weren't shot, and things that were written and were shot and didn't make it in. Um, and it, um, especially with the finale, like. It, that was the that t- was the hardest to write, and it took the longest time. Like mm. pretty much when we when we moved to Atlanta for pre production, when the when the room was the writers' room was finished, um, the majority of the episodes were fairly locked, except for the finale. The finale was just this ongoing question, which is it pretty typical for Marvel projects. Like the climax of a Marvel movie right. is 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 um, just iterated and iterated like until the very end and then often there are um there's additional photography um so i think um you know there were sacrifices that were made because of covid because locations were lost you know and in the reshuffle trying to like get back and um i think that a lot of us had you know dreams for for things that that couldn't be done exactly how they were anticipated. Mm-hmm. And then there's a lot of choices that are made in editing that have to do with like pacing, you know, and not being able to squeeze everything in. And then the, you know, the real thing is the larger master of, of, of Marvel and the other stories. So I think sometimes things are pulled because they, they don't work with whatever the, you know, the discoveries that have just been made on Dr. Strange Two get the priority over the thing that, you know, over the small beat or whatever that we have in our right. finale. Right. Um, so it, yeah, it's a balancing act. Um, yeah, that's what I would say about that. Yeah, but Senior Scratchy was <laughs> super scary. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to talk to you about this idea of the Scarlet Witch. I think this is so interesting. This idea um, that we had never heard that phrase in in the film. Um, and I don't. Do you? Can you say if was that because of the Fox ownership of the character? Is that? I why? actually don't know the okay. answer to that question. Yeah. Okay. But so you're presented with this idea of like, okay, here's, here's a thread we can pull on that we've never used Scarlet Witch um, in, in the films. We're going to aim towards that. The end of the series, she's a Scarlet Witch. Whose idea, where does it come from? This idea of making the Scarlet Witch into this sort of prophesied figure. Um, there's just a, it just seems like such a huge, interesting opportunity you took with this tiny detail, which is we've never used this word, these words before in the films, you know? Yeah. I was, I was nervous about it because so, so the, the, the original notion of it is, um, you know, from the very beginning, this was a show about, you know, like this woman processing her grief, you know, through TV, right. Mm -hmm. That was the thing. But then the, the marvel of it was let's learn more about the Scarlet Witch and her powers. Like that was the directive from the very beginning. And, and that, that was part of the very long conversation about the finale of like drilling down of, okay, well, what are her powers and who is she? And, um, and, what we landed on was this idea of chaos magic and that it is creation magic. It is like creation whole cloth. In fact, she creates three people um, um, without, without any cost. Right. Cause like in the sort of witch culture, the idea of like whatever spells you do or whatever magic you do, there's some sort of cosmic cost in some way. And there's right. you know, 
cost for her. So that is spectacular. And that is the thing that like Agatha wants, because that's a thing nobody has. Um, We went around and around with a lot of different ideas. The, the idea, like the sort of, there was a, there was a time where the, um, the finale was based around a specific prophecy and, and that's what we were sort of running at. And that became too cumbersome. Um, I did enjoy it because, I mean, if Matt Shackman's talking about, you know, Senior Scratchy being a monster, I'm going to talk about this thing. Okay. <laughs> um, it, the prophecy had to do with her destroying the world. Um, and so she's like fight, she's fighting her identity as the Scarlet Witch because she doesn't want to be the person who destroys the world, which I think a piece of that is still in the thing. But like that yeah. was the thing that she was really, really afraid of. Mm-hmm. And then the discovery is that she has to destroy the world of the hex, like the, oh, that the okay. filling of the prophecy. And as a writer, I was like, that is so great. <laughs> We're all geniuses. Um, but it just, it got very restrictive. Um, and one of the things that Marvel is like, so with some of the mythology definitions, it is best to leave things a little bit loose because when you pass the ball forward, it gives the next team more to work with. Um, yeah. So, so, and we loved the idea that we would, land her knowing some but not all and that that would sort of like be part of her trajectory in the next piece of her story um and now i'm totally forgetting what your original question was have i have i answered it joanna yeah you did you did you did it (laughs) um that was what i was gonna say is the the thing of like you know episode eight ending with like you're the scarlet witch yeah i remember matt and i having conversations about like man, is this going to land? Because everybody already knows this. This is not <laughs> new information. Like, is this really, can it be a like, dun, dun, dun? Like, can we actually do it? And ultimately the, the you know, our conclusion was absolutely, we can make everything work as long as we build to it appropriately. And so it was a pleasure to not have, to like, you know, get up on Friday morning and not be met with like a million tweets that are, were like, you know, duh. <laughs> we know. Yeah. We've been knowing. We've been uh, <laughs> very long time thank you uh speaking of you know uh names to give people so so the 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 white version of vision that we see in in the last two episodes um is credited as the vision in like the closing credits i believe uh we see this download of memories given to him and, and they include wanda memories um so you know, I'm sure there's one you can't say about him and where he's going and all that sort of stuff. But like, what's your understanding of who that is, who takes off uh, in the all white? Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it's a tricky thing to answer, but I, I do think I can speak to my understanding of it as a writer. And mm-hmm. it's not necessarily the truth moving forward, but it's how I internalized it. And I, I would think that I think Paul would probably have a similar um, explanation of it. And also probably Lizzie as well. The idea that that yes, he's given all he, like he, the data is unlocked, but it is just that data. It is not what he's experienced. And, and I think the idea is that there is not necessarily immediate and visceral emotion tied to it. So, so in that moment, that is information that is factually true. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of it. Um, you know, yeah, where he goes and what happens, I don't know. But, but that, that's the way, you know, when we were, when we were, um, when I was writing the scenes initially in the finale, um, I, in the, in the action lines and dialogue, actually, I, I referred to um, hex vision as, uh, as soul vision, um, which was kind of our distinction is that like, he has a soul and then this oh. other, this other version does not. 
Um, and that doesn't mean that he can't ever, but like, that was how we would, it was our, our way of sort of talking about him, that he's, he's the vision with the feels, you know, he's the vision. Who's the dad. Like he's, he's this beautiful, like fully lived in creature. Yeah. Um, and then for Wanda's side of it, like the, you know, um, and, and I, I, I don't know if I can speak about this, but Lizzie actually, actually mentioned it in an interview. So maybe I'll, um, <laughs> maybe it's okay that I'm talking about it. Um, there was a scene, a nonverbal scene where they sort of saw each other at a distance and our, um, and then, and then, and then flew in separate directions. Um, and the idea for Lizzie and Paul, I think was like, a lack of recognition. Like she's looking at this person and not only is he not who she remembers, you know, in like Scotland and, you know, Wakanda and all those things, but he is absolutely not the the father of her children and the man that he experienced the hex with. Um, So there's a, there's a, I think the discussions that, that we had with Paul and Lizzie were like a feeling of like, I I don't know you, Um, which, you know, I know there's been some sort of, there, there's been some criticism about like the grief story not being a complete grief story. Like that there's a, like there's a hedge in this way that like as humans, someone dies and you have to live with that. But like, you know, Wanda Maximoff doesn't cause there's this bonus vision out there flying. Um, and the, and I, you know, those thoughts occurred to me as I was working on the project. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I did, I did worry about them, but I, it always made sense to me that this, this isn't that person. Like it is a body, but it's not that person. And she did, in her own way, on her own terms, have to say goodbye to that person. Um, right. Yeah. So, so he has the memories, but not the emotional connection to the memories. So it's more like that's data. My, that's the, that was our interpretation yeah. in, in the creation of yeah. the finale. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, yeah. No, I got... I. Okay. I was going to, oh, thank you for giving me time for one more. Cause I was going to do, I got the text to wrap it up. Um, <laughs> Sorry. I know I still, I've, there's so much talking. I just also really wanted to talk to you. Joanna. No, I, want, I really want to talk to you forever. I, I understand though. Cause I'm just really excited <laughs> to tell you all the things. Um, well, let me say just really quickly. I read in the New York times this morning that you were a fan of lost and I do a podcast about lost. So if you ever want to come talk to me about lost okay. podcast. All right. So, uh, you know, this is our last question. I want to wrap up by asking you about um, something we've talked about throughout this season about WandaVision, which is the danger of this hysterical woman trope, which is something I feel like I've seen in some of the comic treatment of Wanda from some male creative sometimes. Um, and I was wondering, you know, how you guys discuss that and, and sort of try to avoid that, that particular pit. Absolutely. We had in, we had so many conversations about it and my producer, Mary Lovanos and I, even before we hired anyone for the room, you know, we held hands and made the commitment that we would not fall into that territory. Yeah. Uh, the idea, you know, we we pledged to ourselves that we wouldn't put Wanda in a situation where her power, where she would say things like, you know, I can't, you know, it's too much power. It's too, I, it's, I don't know what to do. Like she would be overwhelmed by her own tap power and yeah. then would either need to be saved by someone else or neutralized in some way there would be some sort of like a detonation and combustion that like you know took her out um because she couldn't handle her own power um and for me that's a lot about like i i am not familiar of the feeling with the feeling of like oh no too much power i don't know what to do with it (laughs) someone come save me i am familiar with the feeling of wow i didn't know i had so much power and 
hey, maybe I should step into this power. And this is pretty great stepping into this power. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And these are discoveries that I can make about myself and, and, and learn about myself. Um, And, and that, that it, you know, with the finale, that so much of it came from within that it was, you know, with the runes that was, she learned that from Agatha and then used it against her, right? That's classic, like comic book storytelling. But then, you know, in the end, when she lets um, Vision go, you know, he was the one who told her about grief and she like internalized that like in her own memories. And then she used that to move through like, so, so, um, so yeah, it was really important to us. I hope everyone feels that we succeeded. Um, I find that trope to be really tiresome and I feel very proud um, that we could conclude this series in a way that that avoided that i mean you had a whole therapy episode so uh, you know <laughs> right. amen to it right whatever it. we yeah. did like at yeah. least we had a therapy episode <laughs> <laughs> well thank you so much jack i so love talking to you thanks for coming on me too thank you joanna you come to the new yorker radio hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from whether it's bruce springsteen or quest love or olivia rodrigo Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. All right. Uh, and then, of course, we want to go next to our interview with Catherine Hahn. Uh, but I want to tell you two things really quickly, Anthony. I get to be – I'm so excited yeah. that you're not on Twitter. So I get to be the one to tell you these two things. First of <laughs> all, do you know that Catherine Hahn is currently fostering a kitten named Grogu? Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and then um, also, this, this is what I'm really excited to tell you. Um, she brought up, I did not bring it up. She brought up, uh, Salieri and, uh, Amadeus. So, which was your assessment of the Agatha Wanda relationship. So she's brought it up elsewhere in other interviews since, but, uh, this is the first time I had heard it. Uh, so I was like, ah, I, I, I like almost said like, oh my God, that's what Anthony said, but I didn't. So (laughs) I just want you to know that I was thinking that when she said it. I am thrilled to hear it. (laughs) Um, always good to be somewhat on track (laughs) all right so let us hear from the great uh catherine hahn so something that has been a really fun side effect of of this whole wandavision phenomenon is that people are going back and discovering some of your previous work because they're so excited they want to spend more time with you um i i have like a, a little list of recommendations that i like to give people but what are you most excited oh for people to discover uh if they go back through your cv what do you think people should watch of, of your stuff so crazy i mean i uh, uh gosh i mean first of all i'm from the midwest so i'm always like Oh, I can't ever say anything about myself. <laughs> I, I mean, there's some like little, there's some independent things which I feel like didn't get a wide enough maybe release or audience that I'm really proud of. Um, I loved, I mean, this is a d- totally different genre, but I really loved this show I did called I Love Dick. It was one season, different yeah. genre. Don't maybe bring your children. <laughs> Um, but I did uh, love that. I loved um, 
um, a movie I made called Afternoon Delight. Um, I did love, um, uh, I mean, there's so, I don't know. I mean, I'm so proud of like, you know, all of it. And even like, I think maybe Step Brothers is always a good one to rewatch just because, you know, John and Will are such geniuses in it. And Adam Scott, that's where, where my friendship started with him. And yeah, I'm very, that was a, an Adam McKay. It's just amazing. So very proud of that as well. I'm a big, I'm also a big bad words fan. Like I really oh, like bad, bad words. words. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Oh yeah. People should, should totally watch bad words. I, I was, yeah, I love that, that as well. Jason's uh first feature. Yeah. And, and look where he is now. I know. At every award ceremony. We At get to every see. Every single award ceremony. We get to see what his home office looks like. So I know. <laughs> real nice. It's very nice. All right. So I, I wanted to ask you, um, obviously when you get when you get signed on to play this role that has all this comic book history behind it, um, you know, you have the opportunity to go through the comics if you want to and sort of piece together that history but when you're putting together your take on this character did you sit down and create your own version of a backstory for her no because i i I sometimes don't think that's like very incredibly help that's not very helpful because it's kind of leaping it off the page so i kind of just worked with the amazing script that i was handed by jack schaefer and those writers um, that amazing writer's room, uh, they gave me, so Mary gave me a Bible that basically had every reference to Agatha, like every appearance of Agatha's through the comic books, through the 1961 till now. And so I was able to have all that as a backbone to know all of that was in this person. But then I kind of had to let that go because this is, you know, knowing that that's in there, but then kind of work with that knowledge and and what was on the page if that makes sense to create mm-hmm. this particular bird knowing that those things can exist like she's a mentor she's a nanny she's a mother she's an antagonist and she's also uh your a friend like a you know like a mentor so knowing all those things could be in place in that one person um that was uh I felt all, all I needed was knowing that information and then seeing what was on the page in front of me. Something I've, I've heard Jack Schaefer say, and then I, I talked to her about it actually earlier this morning was this idea that she's not very interested in black and white villains, mm. villains that feel like they're pure evil. Um, she prefers the shades of gray. And I love this line that you have in the finale, there will always be torches and pitchforks for lady like ladies like us, Wanda, right? So I was just wondering, My you know, favorite line. <laughs> how, how you feel Agatha fits into that idea of a, of a shade of gray. Villain. Absolutely. I'm, I'm a hundred percent with Jack. And I think that that's why, um, this part was such a turn on in this amalgamation is because she's all of those things. Like, you know, we talked, Matt had talked a lot about, like we all had talked a lot about the Amadea Salieri yeah. relationship and um, that those things can all exist. Like there can be um, a craving for, for friendship for um, uh, like, there's like a maternal feeling and then there's also like mad jealousy and just like just threat total threat like that this that this perfect 
thing was just born naturally with all this that has not come easy to to this person. So yeah, all those things can exist at, at, at one time. And I think that's why that this part was so a- attractive to me as well. What opportunities did you find in the, in the earlier episodes when you're doing this sort of chipper persona, what opportunities did you find to bake in some of that Salieri envy or, or any kind of digs into those scenes? Well, there's, I think it's all again, like just in the writing, like if you just kind of you know, put one foot in front of the other and showed up like there is in the writing, like the, even in the first episode with the, you know, I say, good girl, like there's certain phrases that were like echoed throughout. I say that in the first episode, I say that a couple times, I say, good girl. And then I say, um, which is like kind of trilling in retrospect, which I love about like telling her how to put the, the lobster thermidor together. Right. Um, and then the second episode was, I remember when we were at the ladies lunch scene and when Dottie says um, the devil's in the details, Bev. And I say, that's not the only place he is. And um, I remember Matt was saying like, just lean into it like a little bit more. Cause I was trying to play it like so straight. And he was just like, let's just lean into it just like a teeny, teeny bit more. And so I think I was able to kind of tease her a bit, like as, as we were going through it. And I like to believe that Agatha also could have revealed herself much, much earlier. Yeah. But was having too much fun. <laughs> what? <laughs> I love that. Um, I love that for her. And and uh, you mentioned the repeated lines. One of our listeners, actually, um, a ten year old listener, which uh, thrilled me. We have like a like a bunch of kids who are listening to this podcast. Vanity Fair's podcast about your show. Yeah, that I mean, is sophisticated, and I love that ten year olds. But yeah, a bunch of kids have have been watching the show and listening to the podcast, which I've never had kids listen to a podcast I've done. So that just thrills me. I know, same. Um, And she noted that uh, Wanda says multiple times, Agnes, you're a lifesaver. So -hmm. she cooked up this little theory before the finale that uh, in some way, whether intentionally or not, that Agnes is going to sort of save Wanda. Do you feel like that's a valid interpretation of what happens in the end there? First of all, I love that 10 year old. It was so moving to me and so incredible. And yes, I, I think absolutely that there was a, um, there was an opportunity in the ending and I'm not sure, like it went through a lot of iterations and, but, and what I think where it landed was so like right on the, that great fine line. But I think there was definitely an opportunity. Um, you know, I say, you're going to need me. And I say like, you know, I've kind of lay out to her all of her, I kind of, I'm the one that kind of ironically leads her to her source. Like I, I'm the one, someone else had called me a therapist. Like I, I'm able to kind of, like she wouldn't open herself up to me in those ways had she not felt s- somewhat safe and that we were able to go back through like the most intense most traumatic part, I mean, of which she has so many, like that person has been through so much (laughs) like that I, that she was able to, that I was able to guide her there to harness her power. Like in this iteration or whatever, this story we have told, that's how she became and owned 
herself as the Scarlet Witch was only because of um, our relate with through our relationship. Um, so anyway, it's, I think it's very astute of that uh, of that ten year old. Because otherwise, I think she would still pretend. I think Wanda would still be pre- trying to would be still in denial. I don't know how long it would last, but. Yeah, this isn't, you know, this is in a interpretation of the show and origin story for the Scarlet Witch, right? We're seeing that creation of that character. And I think that creation of that character doesn't happen without, at least not at this point. You're right. Without right. If this, in this iteration, in this particular show, yeah. that it's certainly that this character of Agatha helped her realize where her power lies, Something that I've heard. How it lies. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to speak for Lizzie though, because she probably has her complete own different um, way, but I think it was, there was something, there was definitely something necessary um, and deep between these two women that wasn't strictly villain hero, which I love. Yeah. And I also love that there is still a way for her to be both antagonist and teacher. You know what I mean? And for both, mm-hmm. you know, the same way goes for Wanda, like that, that character is also in the gray area as well. Like that Wanda, that the Scarlet Witch has done, you know, she's, she's, you know, she's, she's not one or the other either. Right. So I think it makes for a lot of complexity. Yeah. Um, something that I've heard both Matt Shackman and, and Jack Schaefer say is that you were on their sort of dream list for this role that they were thinking about you, uh, you know, a Cap and Han type. Uh, and then they found out that uh, you weren't having like a general meeting with with Marvel. You came in and you, you know, they were like, let's see, Catherine, what can we do? Um, you know, before you connected with this project, what kind of things were you thinking you might do when Marvel comes calls you for a general meeting? I mean, I, you know, you walk into those things just like, just to meet everybody. Like I had no idea. I, I, I knew that Marvel, I love the actors that Marvel works with. Like I'm always so attracted, like can't, I love the level of talent that Marvel um, works with. And I love, what's happening at Marvel so much. I just love, love everything that is happening right now over there. And I was, so I had no expectations walking in. Like, again, I don't even really know that much comic book wise. (laughs) Like I, so I just kind of walked in like an open face sandwich. Like, (laughs) I don't know, like what, what's going to happen. Like, I'm just so thrilled to be here. Like, I wish my kids were with me because, you know, the stuff and the lobby, like everything there was just like, "Ah." I was like, this is being wasted on me. But I, it was, they're such incredibly lovely, decent people. And then at the end of the meeting, Lou Esposito was like, oh, walk down the hall. I think you know somebody who's here. It was at the end of the meeting. And it was Matt Shackman, who my husband knows from the theater, um, he, he from the theater world, like way back in the day. And he now runs the Geffen. Mm-hmm. And he was like, oh, he's working on this show. Like, and he was like in his office. And it was just very sweet to see him, yada, yada. And then it was like two days later, they had, or something like that, had asked me to come back for specifically to talk about this project. And it was Matt and it was Jack Schaefer and it was Mary Lovanos, the producer. And um, I mean, 
wow, 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 wow. Like when I found out it was a witch, I was like, are you, I just was like mouth. (laughs) It was very difficult to know that I had gotten the part or that it was happening. I got the call basically right before I got into an Uber going downtown to do karaoke with some friends. And it was a very difficult, I just had to sing it out, Louise, because (laughs) it was very hard for me to keep it together. I was very, very excited. Smile, baby. What was your karaoke song that you processed your Marvel Uh, secrets through? I'm sure it was, honestly, I'm I'm sure it was some Pat Benatar, or I'm sure it was some Beyonce. I'll do it all. You throw, I, I, that's something I miss terribly is karaoke. It doesn't yeah. really play over Zoom. No, I've done it. It's not great. No, it seems embarrassing. It kind yeah. of like not as fun. Yeah. Um, You've mentioned like, you know, how excited your kids would be. There's certainly like a built-in audience for Marvel stuff, but something that I think has been so amazing about WandaVision is the way in which it's reached all these audiences that weren't interested in Marvel in the first place, either through the, you know, sitcom homages or whatever you're hearing multi-generational families are watching it together um you know how does how does that land with you this this idea of of this being sort of a an entree for so many people into this big world i mean i love it i love it i love that it's with this show i love that it's about i I love that it's a superhero show about grief i love that it's women so many women involved i love that it's um uh, there's so many like women's origin stories, you know, Monica's like there's, I just love so, so much about it that this happens to be an entree point of, because um, it just means like the lid is off in terms of like how storytelling t- can happen and how these, like, it's just very thrilling. And um, the fact, you know, was never, I know intended this way, but the fact that a Friday night show was able, you know, most people now are home on Friday night. So like it became kind of this multi-generational event that, and I, you know, that was also very exciting and un, it, I think at least for me, unexpected to know that it wasn't just like kids with their family, but it was like, everybody was like very excited for all of a sudden for a Friday night, at least in my house. Um, that had been, that was something in the age of binge watching. Right that was really uh, something really fun to look, to look forward to, you know, your, your TV becomes like your family hearth or the fireplace, you know, a a gathering place. And so this was a, became really nostalgic, I think for a lot of people too, to remember what that used to be waiting for a weekly show. Yeah. And I think with binge culture and also, you know, I'm not going to say anything revelatory here, but like binge culture and, and individual devices, we've all built these like tiny little fires in our rooms or our offices yeah. or something like that. And we're not like doing the family gather thing as much oh, anymore. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the, um, you know, the, the, the great female characters on the show, the great female creators behind the show, um, something that may or may not, I don't know how much, fan theories touch your life um but uh you know there's there was all this buzz around folks waiting for this other big bad some other big bad they're not sure who to show up and i was talking to jack about this this morning about this idea of like is there a hint of misogyny and i don't say that in a way to sort of make anyone who who is 
thinking that way feel bad, but this idea that people are waiting for like a male villain to show up or a mm. male hero to come up and save Wanda. And the end, what we get is this really strong female, you know, it's you and Wanda talking. Maybe you're, you're in midair and you're zooming around, you're throwing fireballs at each other, but you're talking to each other for a lot of the finale. Yeah. Um, do you think there's just something baked in to, our expectations that people were waiting for this other figure to arrive. You know, they, those, those, that hadn't really, those, a lot of those theories hadn't crossed, hadn't crossed my virtual desk. (laughs) You call it, but like, I, that is really interesting. And I think there is a lot to unpack there. If indeed that's what was going on. Like people, so people were waiting for like the big male villain, like the Stowe and the, right. Um, yeah, that's a lot to unpack there. And I think there probably is there like that, that this, that this, that this person or this character isn't enough, that there still has to be something, this isn't enough of a threat or this isn't enough of a, yeah, that's really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. And something that Jack was saying and like, you know, because I, I, you know, it's not like I'm completely innocent of those speculations, but something that Jack was saying that I thought was just so interesting was like, it's not that anyone is sitting around twirling their mustache in a misogynistic way saying, no. like, you know, can't be a woman, but it's just sort of, you know, what we have been trying to expect, you know, from well, our and I also think that there's like this, there's, there is maybe this, ec- the idea of like expectation, like more, 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 more. And because of the device, because of like, we all have like, you know, connection to the, interweb like I, I think it's the the speculation becomes more and more and more like you know people those theories can take off and t- take on beyond what the show set up to achieve sure. and and um that's totally thrilling but people then but then i guess like the disappointment is just like in something that never was there to begin with you know this is about a woman really reconciling her grief yeah and going going through her walking through her her pain to find her power and um so yeah the, the, all that stuff is fun and i'm with you like i don't think it's necessarily literally that but i think that that must that expectation is culturally built in i think that's interesting um in terms of the finale, I think this has to be sort of leaps and bounds, the most effects heavy work that you've ever done on something, right? I think so. <laughs> I mean, I had, listen, I had a lot of makeup on and bad moms. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. But uh, you're doing, are you doing like wire work in this? And yeah. Like, oh yeah. So what, was like, yeah. It was incredible. Like, I mean, I, I worked, I mean, I have such mad respect and such mad love for Whitney, my stunt double like walking me through this process and for that entire stunt team like they're incredible humans and that kind of family like that kind of circus family of like a stunt team is like is all of it to me like I love that vibe so much I just love it I love the like care and respect and loyalty that they like the whole thing I is like right up my alley it's maybe it's because I come from the theater but like it's that idea of like just holding each other up. Like I love so much in, in the stunt community, literally. And so like, as it, for an actor point of view, I always feel like that, that you're there to hold each other up on the stage. Um, and so certainly, you know, when, with your scene partner on camera, but so, yeah, we, I had definitely to answer your question. I went a r- long way around, but definitely did have to do some, 
to do some new things for myself uh, stunt-wise for this, which was really fun. And they were incredibly patient with me because I, it was, some of it was very, was very difficult um, to try to just, like, I don't know, what do you look like when you fly? What what do your arms do when you fly? Um, Yeah, and, and, and does that have an impact on your, you know, your approach to performing a scene, performing a line. If if, yeah. you have, if your mind is also on what should my arms be doing sort of thing. Yeah, know? I mean, that's, I, I have, I mean, I, if I didn't have enough mad respect for Elizabeth Olsen before this, like I, she's, I don't, like she's just is able to like hold steady and hold in her truth with so much going on around her. Um, and Paul too, honestly. Like they both are just like, I'm like, oh, okay. I learned a a ton from watching them because it is like, there are so many other things happening that it is really hard to like hold that are just bananas off camera. Like, you know, like you can't imagine what's going on, the ruckus, but that they're able to like hold true and and hold their truth and just tell the story and listen. Um, I was just in awe of them. And a lot of that also goes to our director, Matt Shackman, who, again, comes from the theater. Um, and he is used to doing, like, you know, his resume is, like, he can do small sitcom and he can do, like, huge fight scenes. Yeah. Like he's, and he's also just, like, a magician. And also, I do not understand the level of patience and kindness that this person had the entire time we were shooting. Like, um, he's just one of the good ones. Marvel has a tendency to hire, you know, like actually nice people as as well as talented people. That's, yeah, everybody. Yeah. Like from Kevin down, like the lo- like loveliest, loveliest group. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it starts at the top and he's just like a decent, excited person. Like he was just like thrilled, um, thrilled by what was happening. This is obviously like a, a new, you know, he, Kevin is, has conquered the film world, but this, you know, here he is dipping his toes into the TV world. You've done a lot of television recently. I Love Dick, Mrs. Fletcher, et cetera. What to, to your mind, other than the wire work, what, you know, what's the difference between doing uh, a show for Amazon and a, and a show for Marvel for Disney? I mean, while I was doing it, it really always feels the same Joanna and I'm not just saying that like when you're in when you're do when it help it just it has to be whether you're getting paid like two dollars or more than two dollars it just it has you have to approach it with the same amount of energy and I have to like I it has to be the work you know what it is I love my job so much like I love acting and I love a set and I love community and I love the feeling of the circus, like I said before. And so like, whether it be small and everyone like, which I miss, you know, those days now, but like whether it be teeny tiny or whether it be on this scale, it's still the, it still feels the the same. And um, I think that's a testament to, the people involved over there that they were able to like carve out space for um, the emotion and like the, the truth and, and like, honestly, not just like pretending like that they just did. And, um, and I think that um, 
it's a testament to those performers I, I got to play with. with Lizzie and Paul, everybody. I didn't get to play with Tiana and Kat and Randall enough, but I think they're amazing. But, but I, um, but Lizzie, certainly they, yeah. they, we, it felt very like, it's funny because it really, now the after effects, I've never been in something this big. Like I've certainly like now on the other side of it, I'm like, whoa, <laughs> like, my God, like nothing I've ever done has gotten this kind of attention. But, uh, um, but while we were doing it, 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 you know, there was a lot going on. It was certainly was a lot, a bigger base camp than I'm used to, but when it got down to the doing of it, um, we were able to just to do it. I mean, it was hot. It was like, you know, we went through a lot together for sure. Um, I was talking to uh, to Emma Caulfield about about that finale, and she was like, "It was the hottest day of my entire yeah. life filming that finale out in the town square." Sort of, uh, you guys, and then you know, you're up on top of a building or whatever it is, doing your lines on this. Yeah, it was hot very, day. very, very hot. Uh, it was very hot, but again, like, yeah, you know, yes, it was it hot, yes. But then, would did you look and see your beautiful crew just? as equally hot, but then also had to wear masks and shields <laughs> and just feel like, okay, yeah. we're okay. I got a cooling suit on. I, I'm not going to complain about like it. So, you know, we, it was, um, it was, uh, we got it done. Yeah. Yeah. But Emma is totally right though. It was very, it was a, we, we, we did shoot a lot of that finale under a lot of extreme circumstances and, and, and hats off to Matt for keeping his, you know, metaphorical cool. <laughs> and uh and a cooling suit for those who don't know right is this underlayer where they sort of circulate cold water isn't it to sort of yes. under your under your super hey, Paul was suit? Like, use, it, use it like just trust me and i was like i mean i already have like wires he was like trust me and then i was like i was very relieved uh that i had one yeah, yeah. Um, let's let's go back to this karaoke discussion and talk about, of course, this like uh, gigantic show-stopping bop that you got to do. Um, God, uh, can you please define bop to me, a? Because I've I've heard that that. Uh, what would you call like a really good song? What word would you use? A hit. A hit. Yeah, but like a hit that you definitely like want to move your body to. Oh, okay. That's what I would say. That's a bop. Yeah, I thought it meant like the size of it. Oh no, no. It's like, it's like the impact of it that you want to move to it. (laughs) Can you tell me just a little bit about the process of, of laying down, laying that down, laying down those tracks, laying down those tracks is what I was going to say. But then I was like, that's, that's, I'm not that cool. Uh -uh." (laughs) Um, It was, I mean, I knew from the beginning that there was going to be theme songs. Yeah. I knew that I was going to have one. Um, I knew that eventually knew that the Lopez's were writing it, which I was like, what are you talking about? (laughs) And I, it was like, I think last week of shooting or something, I had a day off and I ran to a booth somewhere in North Hollywood. It was all sanitized and they were, I was by myself and they were like set up on a zoom screen and we had like a half an hour to like bang out the refrain. And then I was, I mean, I loved what they had written. I thought it was like, I, and I knew that as we were shooting the show at the end of every decade, Matt would say, okay, let's do the, let's do the Agatha 
buttons. So yeah. then we would have like a t- while we were on the set, we would have like a designated whatever yeah. hour or something to 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 like do that little. And those were always so much fun because it was like Matt said that was his favorite part of the whole show was oh my those god! Little- I mean, honestly, <laughs> it was so, that's so awesome. No, we laughed so hard, and it, because it was like so fun to just be like ham boning, and I mean, it was are you kidding it's my dream so yeah that was uh, i'm i it was so fun oh i love him um is that the is the success of that song the most Going surreal to, to my own singing career <laughs> yes <laughs> oh my god is it gonna be show tunes is it gonna be beyonce covers what is it gonna be um <laughs> no <laughs> But is it, um, is that the most serial aspect of all of this for you so far? Or is there something that has been even odder? I mean, I think the meme situation was a real surprise. <laughs> <laughs> I really didn't know that was even happening. And then I just kept, my friends kept sending me those images and I was like, oh my God. <laughs> It's just so, so fun. It's just, oh, so anyway, I was like, I wish my mouth was like, just, you know, a little bit bigger the next time. Oh my yeah. God. Go bigger. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so obviously at the end of the, of everything, um, Agatha is sort of uh, put on ice in a way sure. where Marvel could use her again anytime <laughs> they want. Right. <laughs> um obviously you 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 know even if you've had those discussions you can't give us any specific details but you know was was that telegraphed to you as a specific intention like we're hitting apple's save on this character no no nothing was nothing was given to me that i just kind of read that and that's what it was so who knows who knows who knows who knows who knows Um, knows? but i do love that that's her the, the that is her um ultimate fate for now is being back there. Yeah, it's 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 uh it's cruel to be kind, kind to be cruel. It's it's sort of a, a little kind of a little bit of both because yeah. it's, it is like I think probably Agatha's nightmare, but also like as I was saying um, to somebody else, it, like it's her night. It's completely her nightmare, but also might be fun to just sit still for a second. And um, I just don't think she likes the idea of being out of control. That's a, that's the worst um obviously again also you can't say anything about the future of of wanda even if you know anything but but you know just for you watching this show watching where it ends for her you know are you the viewer worried for or worried about wanda oh that's a good question i would as a viewer because i really don't have any idea of what's happening next i would say i would be worried about everybody else because I think there, there is clearly a lot of, a lot brewing. And I, it was clear to me after watching the finale that whatever she had learned or processed through this experience of bringing her family to life again, only to have them disappear, um, I don't think that it's clearly there. There is no close. It's not, com- there's not complete closure. <laughs> right. Okay. And my last question for you is um, 
you know, given, given the massive response to this, given, given the, um, you know, potential doors it might open for you, what would be your dream thing that you could do next after, of course, you record your album for all of us, but after that, you know, like what, what, like, do you want to do a small, you know, play? Do you want to do, uh, do you want to be in the next Fast and Furious movie? Like, what, what are you, where is After your- I do my, uh, a very spooky Halloween album. Absolutely. Please make Um, I would, <laughs> um, just a lot of like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, I would, I, I have no idea. Like, I, I'm honestly like, I still, like I said before, I'm just like, I, I'm, as a working actor, like I am just so excited to see whatever the next bur- whatever the next gig is. That's just like, sp- that speaks to me that I'm like, I don't know who she is or what the genre is yet or what, what it's going to be, but I know I'll, I'm, I don't know. I mean, I have no idea. I mean, it's all been, I mean, I wouldn't have thought in a million years that this would have happened in my career. So right. I mean, I'm still very, you know, it's just like, who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Excellent. Who knows? Just trying to be grateful and like present for this moment. Cause this is really just like, has been so surreal to be, you know, in a, in a house, you know, with my family folding laundry and like, a, like sometimes getting memes of me, of my face. It's just like a very trippy, <laughs> very trippy period. Are the kids uh, excited? Are they? Are they like? Is is this the coolest thing that you've done? For them? Yeah, I mean, it is. Like, it's definitely like. It, yes, yes. I mean, they can't. Again, they can't show me because I'm mom. Right. But they're very. But I think they're very, very excited. My daughter has a lot of. Um. um has a lot of ownership. I think over Agatha too, because she got to come to some fittings of the hero witch outfit. Um, that Maya's our amazing mm-hmm. costume designer put together. So she was able to be at a couple fittings. And so she, and kept it a secret to her credit. Um, and so she has, uh, she has a lot of uh, ownership of it, like, and, and feels like a d- dear part of this process. And so that has been also really special too. That's so sweet. Yeah. I love, I mean, I love that we get the tease at the bottom of the outfit, right. In at the end of, I don't know, whatever it is, six, seven, seven. And uh but I did not expect that the top of the outfit was going to be like much more classic comic book Agatha with the turtleneck. And the, I, like, know. You know what I, mean? I know, I mean, that was like a collaboration because, and we got to that like t- together too. Like, you know, that was something that I, I really loved from the comic books. And I thought that that would be a way to bring in, you know, m- more of her, her, her ancient, you know, like just of, of Agatha's, you know, she's centuries old and just like her wisdom and her, like, there's something about it that felt very, um, um, powerful. And my, I think just Maya's did such a beautiful job. Did you, sorry, I know I, I promised you the last question, but this is really my last question. Did you also have, a uh, input on the, because the, her makeup design is so different when she's in sort of yes. blown witch mode. Yeah. I mean, our amazing, yeah. My amazing makeup artist V did, and uh, Cindy, who did my hair and the wigs, like are such incredible artisans. And like that took a set, like it definitely took us a second to find her look. And like, I think that that is her look for this in this, you know, I think she wanted to show up. 
<laughs> and that was like her, that was her showing up in this iteration, in this moment, in this in this long time span of her existence. Um, uh, it was very, very fun to experiment with eyebrows. She's like, you want a witch? I'll show you a witch. I'll tell you. I'll this, show you some eyebrows. This is a mm-hmm. witch. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Catherine. Oh my God. It was so my it. pleasure. And your, yeah. your cat was very well behaved. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we're going to, we're going to wrap up really quickly and talk about um, actually three quick things. I'm, I'm blindsiding Anthony really quickly. Uh, I just want to ask you uh, about a week later, Anthony, how are you feeling about Pietro, Pietro, Ralph Boner? How are you feeling? Um, confused and, um, not entirely satisfied yeah. by the explanation about that. Like, uh, one of the questions we got was, well, if he wasn't a manifestation of Pietro, then how was he, how did he have super speed powers? Which I think is a legit question. And I think it's one of those things that you and I joke about, uh, from The Simpsons when, um, Lucy Lawless appeared at like a, a fan convention, a sci-fi convention, and somebody asked a very specific question about Xena Warrior Princess, uh, where there was some sort of inconsistency. And she said, uh, you know, whenever you notice something like that, a wizard did it. And I think <laughs> in this case, I guess we're just going to have to roll with the fact that, um, Agatha's puppeteering of Ralph, uh, who apparently some sort of actor who was living in suburban New Jersey, uh, you know, that, that somehow she at least made him appear to have those super speed powers. The, um, the other thing I'll say is something that Matt Shackman said about like the, like uh, one other listener asked us, like, why would Wanda think that that was her brother if it looks nothing like her brother? And something that mm-hmm. Matt Shackman said is this is sort of like an intentional commentary on like, the links will go to in our grief to accept something that isn't real. I was talking to, I was on the slash film cast podcast this week talking about WandaVision and, and uh, Dave Chen, uh, the host of that show brought up the documentary uh, or the, I don't know. It's like a docu fictional documentary, whatever uh, about uh, the, the imposter. Did you ever see that? But a man no, basically who like that. goes and pretends to be like a long lost and he just like kind of looks nothing like this guy. I've watched it. It's been a, it's been a few years, but like he, he basically like, it's a real thing that happened, but they dramatize it. That's what I meant. A dramatized sort of thing. And, uh, he looks nothing like him, but they accept him because they want to believe that this is their long lost son or whatever it is, you know? Hmm. So just this idea that like, that's, that's kind of what the idea of what's going on there. Um, all right. And then, and then like, let's wrap up with this, which is sort of like a two part question. Lawrence writes in and saying, do you think the show is making one out to be a hero or a villain? There's a line in the finale about everyone in the town, never knowing how great her sacrifice was. But in reality, what is one's person suffering? One person suffering compared to the suffering of dozens, if not hundreds of townspeople. If you take a, a step back, it seems pretty overtly about someone doing something truly sinister, despite what their intentions may have been. It seems like the show is setting her up to be misunderstood villain thoughts. So, you know, if you're, if you're listening to us talk now, you will have already heard, Jack and Catherine a little bit talk about this, this idea of like Wanda's the shades of gray of Wanda. Um, I think it is a little bit of a mistake in the finale to have Monica sort of hype Wanda up. 
I think I think maybe there should have been a little bit more unease, like empathy from Monica, but a little bit more unease with what it was that Wanda did there. Because um, as it stands, it does kind of seem like um, the show is is set. Uh, the The messaging's a little mixed, I think, in the end there. Um, but that might be intentional to introduce ambiguity for what we're going to see from Wanda next, which is you know up to the Doctor Strange folks. Um, but uh, a few things that I want to say about that. No, I, I know. I, I want to throw to you. What do you think, uh, Anthony? Look, I think I think ambiguity for a superhero is good. It's what makes Batman interesting. It's what makes um, Iron Man kind of interesting. Uh, the It's the key to so many different heroes. The potential that they have to slip over and cross the line into villainy. And... I think it just makes Scarlet Witch a little more interesting. She is one of the most powerful beings in the universe. And so, of course, how she chooses to use that is worth examining and thinking about. And And I think it's it's not necessarily a condemnation of her. I think it's something that makes you care about her. It's like you want her to be safe. You want her to be happy. You're on her side. But it's like, girl, please don't cross that line. Yeah. Don't go too far. Yeah. And I think if she does plunge into uh, being, let's say, an antagonist in, in uh, or some uh, a source of danger in future Marvel storytelling, it's never going to be let's despise uh, and hate on um, on Scarlet Witch or Wanda Maximoff. It's always going to be, how can we save her? How can we pull her back? Like you're going to root for her Mm -hmm. to cross back over no matter what happens, as opposed to Agatha where you're like, can just make her as bad as possible. Like make her a badass, (laughs) make her cross the line. Like there are some characters you love to hate and you want them to be as dastardly as possible. But Wanda's one of the people you want, you want to pull back. I don't know. I think I would, I mean, I, I think I I agree with you about that, but I would also put mm-hmm. Agatha in the Loki bucket where I'm also kind of just sort of like, I like you bad, uh, you're fun bad, but like, I'd but, also like you to be good. Too. <laughs> yeah, it's neat. It's nice, but it's not, that's what makes that fun is like, oh, the bad guy's helping out a little bit, yeah, you know, yeah, like, exactly. uh, you know, and, and it has to be earned. Like they, they have to do it for a reason. Like they like you, they want to help. They want to do something. I remember there was like a post 9-11 comic that someone drew that was about the heroes, like trying to help in the salvage of the world trade center. And I, like, I may be misremembering this, but there was like a, a, a cut shot of like Dr. Doom and like a single tear inside of his mask. And I was like, Dr. Doom wouldn't cry about this. Like he creates disasters like this. So why is he sad? But the notion that like some things cross a line and some bad guys have to be good or are willing to help. Like that's always interesting too. Mm-hmm. Because exactly. you know they're going to go back, too, right? <laughs> like they're always, Loki's always going to slip the knife out. One more trick up his sleeve. That's our Loki. Um, mm-hmm. All right. Well, I mean, that. I mean, we really could talk about this forever, but, um, we're, you know, this podcast is already as long as it is. So thank you all so much for listening. We will be back with Falcon and the Winter Soldier next week. Um, and we hope you join us. I mean, we've been having so much fun. I think there will be still plenty to chew over in that in this next show. Uh, I don't think it's qu- quite as much of a mystery box show, but it but it, it will have some opportunity for theorizing, which we'll, we'll have fun with. And um, yeah, I think I think it's gonna be really great to talk about. Um, until then, Anthony, 
Where can folks find you? People can find me at uh, VanityFair.com, writing away about Marvel and uh, DC, because we've got the Snyder Cut coming out, and I've been spending a lot of time focused on that particular universe. So check me out there. Excellent. Uh, you can find me on uh, Twitter at Joe wrote this. You can find Richard on there as uh, at Ryan laws and you can email us still watching pod at gmail.com. We love your emails. Thank you. Sent us so many good questions. I'm sorry that we didn't have time to get to everyone, but they were so good. Um, and maybe, maybe I'll slip in a little like one vision answer every now and then, because there's a lot of questions about the future of the MCU that I think mm-hmm. we can work into our upcoming episodes. So thank you all so much. And we will see you next next week. Bye. Bye. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Luna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.